Hello again, and welcome back to Baby Sally's Sunday Sermons number three. It's hard not to laugh when I say that, but uh, bear with me. Uh, This all may change in time. Uh, You may also be hearing some background music uh, that will be added post-production. Just so you know, I record these live, unscripted, unrehearsed. Uh, I just, the same rule I used for my previous podcast... I turn on the recorder and start talking and hope I get to uh, a point that's worth sharing <laughs> at some time uh, during the discourse or during the discussion. During the monologue, um, I, I just believe that that brings out a little more honesty. And so there will be mistakes. I will say the wrong word or I'll misquote something and... Uh, I may or may not bother to go back and edit. I, I really don't like spending a lot of time. I, I like doing the producing, the creating, the making of this, uh, but going back and fixing it all up or editing is, is not much fun, and I have other things I'd prefer to do with my time. So you'll have to grant me that and forgive any errors and correct them yourself in your own head if you think that's necessary. <clears throat> I'm in a new location today. I am parked at uh, the Presbyterian, St. Andrew's Presbyterian Cemetery right here in Scarborough. It's a favorite spot, uh, like the other two previous locations. I come here often. It's and I'm facing the cemetery, which is where I recorded actually the very first of the Dixon Janes podcast 10 years ago. And uh, behind me is the church itself. And there are many times I've come here and thought, gee, I wonder if... I should visit that church some Sunday and never quite got around to it and, and never quite had the feeling I belonged here. Um, so I'm looking out at all the Macowans and Locks and Browns and Finns and Hunters and people have been here for many generations. This is a, It's very an interesting place to visit uh, when people come to Scarborough for the first time. I often take them here because it, it has the... Um, Tombstone is not the right word, but the the grave markers, the uh, whatever you want to call these things, of the very first settlers here, the Thompson family. Uh, This was all farming community. Uh, It's very close to where it was the last time, Thompson Memorial Park. And uh, there's a stream that runs through, which back, you know, 150 years ago probably would have been... uh, much more important. I, I believe there was a bit of a, a, um, a water wheel on that river system and would have been great farming community. And it's also a marker because this was part of an old Indian trail, if I can use that word. Uh, it's up on a ridge that um, was quite important. And of course, in those days, Scarborough would have been quite a distance from what we now know as Toronto, which was then York, I suppose. Anyway, so much for the history. Uh, I want to get back to um, a couple of things. I mentioned on the very first sermon podcast that I had attended uh, this Gestalt workshop and I had had a very interesting uh, session 
of men talking about being men and the inner man and so on. And we were, we were paired, paired up for those discussions. The good thing is you don't necessarily get paired up with somebody you just feel an immediate affinity to or you connect with or it's not like going with a friend. Oh, yeah, let's you and I do it because we we're comfortable with each other. Uh, I was paired up with somebody who I, I had a little bit of a difficult time uh, relating to because this person was very little distant and incorporated a lot of silence in his communication. And I'm one of these people, if there's too much silence, I feel, well, I guess it's my turn to fill it up. And I know that is a fault. And uh, I'm only bringing this up because it may relate to this podcast as well. I may dribble on about things that are, are off topic or really have not great interest to you. And this particular person made that quite clear to me at, at some point. We were supposed to be talking, what is it we need from each other so that our inner person can feel free and comfortable and exposed and, and welcomed. And when there was a, a gap, he would he had a tendency to look straight into your eyes, which sometimes makes me uncomfortable too. I'm not as comfortable holding a steady eye gaze with somebody. I, I tend to shift away and look elsewhere uh, as a teacher, it's very easy because you you have a classroom full of eyes and you just shift from one to the other uh, or just look at heads. Um, but this person would look at you, but there might not be anything being said. And I should have been able to dial it back and just be comfortable with that and maybe just smile back and accept the gaze. But instead, I, I tended to fill it and I, I got into... Oh, dearie me, stories about myself and what I had done. And I started talking about the Dixon Janes podcast, and I talked about the Dixon Janes zine. And I, there was a point where he just very clearly, very directly, and I don't remember his exact words, but it was to the effect of, do you think I really care? Do you think I'm caring now? Do you think I'm interested? He didn't say those words, and it wasn't as rude as that. But he was letting me know, hey, you're off topic. We're talking about the here and now, and here you are going on about something. And when it came time to come clean to maybe summarize for the group what had happened, what did your exchange feel like, I had said how much I admired this person for being so honest and so direct. And I jokingly said, he basically said, shut up, old man, you're boring. Now, he didn't say that, and he didn't intend that. But he did make it clear that I was just filling in the space with words. And I really hope that that is a lesson to me, uh, a gentle reminder to myself not to dump too much on you, the listener, uh, so that I can keep your interest and, and not go on and on about my own personal stories. Now... Having said that, I, <laughs> forgive me, but I'm going to go on and on about some of my own personal stories. Uh, Nigeria. I had the good fortune to spend two years in Nigeria, uh, 1980 to 1982, as a CUSO volunteer. This was Canadian University Services Overseas. And uh, this is one of the reasons. I, I traveled throughout the country, and this is one of the reasons I am just so deeply disturbed by Boko Haram and the killings and the kidnappings and the brutality uh, of all that's happened, in, mainly in northern Nigeria, 
especially in places where people, Christians and Muslims, lived in relative peace. There were always little stories of fires and chasings and so on, but not to the point of burning down churches and um, other more monstrous atrocities. So um, anything about Nigeria troubles me deeply because I, I did grow to really, really love, I, I would say, the, the, the people in that country and the, 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 the power, the, the courage. There are just so many positive qualities that I, I learned about during my time. Now, while I was there, I spent a lot of time on what I would call a, a search uh, part of it was the fact that I taught at a Christian school, St. Angela's Girls Grammar School, run by Sister Annette. These were the Sisters of Notre Dame. They were based out of Ireland. They had come over, and this was their their base. And they did an absolutely marvelous job. And I was so fortunate to be, you know, under their wing. Because when you got invited over to their uh, dormitory, the place where they lived... There was fresh bread, there was cold beer, there was kindness and generosity, there was maybe eggs or something given to you to take home. It, it was absolutely wonderful. I lived on my own in a um, a wonderful old house built for a, a mission doctor many, many years ago. Uh, chicken wire, sort of where the windows were, but no glass, of course. Uh, a bungalow, a, a truly, truly fine old home. Uh, that took me several weeks to get comfortable in, uh, but I certainly grew to appreciate its, its special location. And uh, the best thing about it, it had a large cistern, I think, a, a system of eaves troughs that collected water in this big concrete bunker. And if I was very careful, I could make that water last throughout the dry season and into the next rainy season when it filled up again. Something the other villagers didn't have. So the, the one take-home from my entire time in Nigeria was the value, the importance of water. Without water, you can do nothing. We lived without electricity. We were fairly fortunate. We would tend to have electricity on a rotating basis, often every second day. And that was enough to keep things in your fridge cold. And I had the necessities, a water filter and I got my, walk by bu- my water by buckets out of this big cistern, and I would use it, you know, to wash, and eventually, at the, at the end of the day, to maybe flush the toilet. Um, was able to wash clothes, and of course, the other people in my village did not have water. They ran out during the rainy season and had to buy water from a tanker trunk truck, which sucked up horribly dirty, muddy water that they would have to make use of. I I was put in a very, very difficult situation where people might come to my house and ask if they could have some of my water, and I would have to say no. And that may sound horrible to you now, but I was living on my own. I didn't have brothers and sisters or little children who could run down to the river and carry back buckets of water on their head, as the other children did. And if I gave my water out, I would have nothing. And uh, I had to ration it, and it meant, I'm sorry, but I need this water to survive. That that was a very difficult thing to do. And, um, but 
there were a lot of adjustments you had to make to survive in Nigeria, and that was one of them. I'm on this story because, again, I mentioned the uh, sisters ran the, the school. Uh, there were missionary teachers from India who also taught there who are wonderful people, and I will talk about them at another time. There was a church. Um, Father Grace, I believe, looked after the church, who lived further down the road in the next village. And uh, then there was a hospital run by Sister Bernadette, who was another very strong woman who stood up to people. And if, in Nigeria, it was quite common to be stopped by police who would want dash, they'd want some money, or if not, bandits or somebody who would want something. And these these women had the courage and the, the moral righteousness to stand up to these people and say, hey, we're here looking after your children. You do not take from us. And they didn't do it in a selfish way. They did it in a way that you better know what's right for you. Uh, there was one time when uh, people had come to clean my house. Maybe it was during a vacation time or something. And when I came back, I noticed there were just some little things missing. Nothing important, but just little knickknacks, little things maybe I had purchased, little souvenirs or something. And there was just a few of them missing, and I, I was disturbed by it. Uh, perhaps I should have just ignored it, but I didn't. So I went and told uh, the sister. And by the next day, every one of those things was lined up on my porch put back in its place. And the sister explained to me, and I believe this was Sister Bernadette who had talked to them. I think it was probably uh, cleaners from the uh, from the hospital had come and done this. That in their minds, they were just taking little souvenirs as gifts for cleaning my house. But she had explained to them that Ken was here teaching your children, teaching the people of the village and it was not a good thing to do to take his belongings. And it, it, I don't think it was a threat. I don't think they were punished with, you know, or threatened with eternal damnation or anything. It just wasn't the right thing to do. And all those little things. And I felt a little bad afterwards about having them back. My goodness, I could go on for a very long time about Nigeria because there was a, a wealth of stories. But the one I want to get to, and again, I, I think this relates to the... Last time when I mentioned that the uh, bars are also my churches, I was in a particular place. I drank a lot of beer in Nigeria. You had to hydrate yourself. And basically the idea of you did whatever you needed to do to survive your two years in Nigeria because it was not an easy time. Um, and I would visit the local little bars, any place that might have a cold beer or that looked interesting and maybe had some music playing and there was one particular one that I, I didn't often go to, but I, I stepped in that night, and I was sitting by an open window. Um, again, there'd be no glass. There'd just be a hole in the cement wall. And while I was drinking my beer, I suddenly heard a girl crying, and then crying again, and then crying that was closer to screaming, and it was crying that was associated with pain. And I realized that very close to where I was sitting... A girl was being beaten, and beaten in a, in a way that hurt for something that she had done for some misdeed. I had no idea. And the more she cried, the more it, it bothered me, obviously, and disturbed me so deeply. This was so wrong, and I knew 
I could just get up and go over there. It would be easy to find where the crying was coming from. Just follow the voice, the screams, the cries. And I could get up and go there. But I also knew, having lived in Nigeria long enough, that were I to go and intervene, the punishment would be so much more severe afterwards for either bringing shame or embarrassment or causing this thing to get greater than it was. And the only thing I could do was to sit there and listen. And that's when I prayed to God. That's when I, I asked God, God, what, what do I do? Help me here. I, I, I can't bear to hear this crying. It, it's Somebody's in pain. Somebody's being hurt. And I want to stop it. And I don't want that person to suffer. And whoever is beating them is, is wrong and shouldn't be doing this to a child. What do I do? And the answer, if there was an answer, I wasn't spoken to directly, but it was just the knowledge, the awareness of perhaps there's nothing you can do right now. It will end. It will stop. And it did. I don't know if there's a point to that story other than to explain that no matter where you are, you can pray. That was part of it, certainly. That uh, there are, have been, and maybe still are, many times in my life when I do pray, pray for, in this case, it was guidance. I wasn't praying to God, intervene and stop, strike that man down who was doing the beating, but just guide my heart. And most of my prayers focus on that. What does it help me? Guide me. Tell me. What is the right thing to do? What should I do in this case? There was another case when um, I was in a car and a taxi driver raced down the road to the next town where I had to catch another taxi to begin some longer journey. And a child ran across the street and the taxi hit the child. It was a child just as they were in Nigeria, just wearing a pair of underwear, no shoes, nothing else, no other clothing. And he bounced, literally bounced off the um, right-hand front fender of the car. And it was as if it all happened in slow motion. I could hear the sound. I saw the body. I, I knew he landed with a, a thud on the road. And it, it, was, it was horrible. And the driver did what he knew he had to do, which was put his foot to the floor get out of that town and disappear. And I said, you have to stop, go back. The, the child, you've hurt a child, what, what are you doing? And, and I, I yelled at him to stop and he, he stopped and let me out. He knew in his mind if he had stopped there, the villagers would have grabbed him, pulled him out, set his taxi on fire, maybe set him on fire, uh, that his survival meant leaving that town, never not being seen for a long time. And I went to the school. I, he dropped me off at the school where Father Grace was. And Father Grace was just conducting morning assembly. And I went to the school and I asked the guard or somebody, please, I've, I've got to talk to the father. Please, I need to see the father. And I guess I was out of breath and obviously distressed. And he said, he'll be with you in a moment. And he finished the morning prayers, the morning assembly and 
came back to me wherever I was sitting in maybe his house or his room. And he got me a brandy. I said, take this. And he said, there is nothing you can do. I said, I've got to go to the police. I've got to report this man. And he said, clearly and calmly, and after I had calmed down and caught my breath, that if you go to the police, you will not be able to leave Nigeria until that man is caught, brought to justice, and a trial is set, and this long process starts, and you will be a witness, and you will simply be trapped. And all you can do is forget that it happened. I don't know if those are his exact words. Maybe he said, pray, take some comfort. We'll look after the child. I don't know what else. But again, it was a case of there was really nothing you can do. This is life in Nigeria. I have much more to say on that topic, but I see we've reached the 20-minute mark. And uh, I will end it there. Again, I'm, I'm telling stories, and perhaps these should be Baby Sally tells stories rather than gives sermons, because I'm sharing with you, but I don't know what I expect you to get from this. I hope that you're at least entertained. Uh, and again, as we roll along and I continue doing these, this might reshape itself and might come up with a different name. Uh, these things have a tendency, they're organic, they grow, they become something of their own. And that's the wonder of creation and the wonder of, uh, of uh, just the act of spontaneity, the act of creativity. So, as they say... And this infuriates a lot of people, but uh, it is what it is. So on that note, I will leave you, and uh, I'll be back another time with another story. Remind me to tell you about the time I found Jesus. Here's Julie Kin signing off for now. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.